Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Flight Test Safety Podcast. In this episode, we will be talking about the upcoming Flight Test Safety Workshop, the Tony LeVere Flight Test Safety Award, and we will finish up our discussion with Sylv and CFITS talking about model-based framework for online model validation and risk awareness. But first, let's start with a bit of aviation history. Two events from this week in the past, both involving setting records. First, we'll go back to 22 February 1928. Herbert John Lewis Hinkler arrived at Darwin, Northern Territories, Australia, after flying solo from Croydon, London, England. He departed Croydon 15 days earlier, flying his Avro 581 Echo Avian. He had navigated by using a London Times Atlas. Now, the previous record time for the 11,000-mile journey had been 28 days, and he did it in 15. An estimated 10,000 spectators were on hand to watch his arrival, and the government of Australia awarded him a prize of 2,000 pounds, which is probably worth a lot more in today's money. And he was appointed a squadron leader in the Royal Australian Air Force Reserve and awarded the Air Force Cross. Now, we'll fast forward six years to 18 February 1934. In the wake of a national scandal, President Roosevelt canceled all of the commercial contracts by executive order because of a controversy as to how those contracts had been issued by the U.S. Postal Service. So the final commercial airmail flight before the United States Army took over the U.S. airmail, yes, that's right, the Army Air Corps became responsible for flying the mail. And as you might imagine, there are a few lessons learned from that mm, experience, but maybe for another podcast. Anyway, 15,000 people were present to watch the DC-1 take off from Glendale, California. The pilots were from Transcontinental and Western Air Incorporated. Yes, TWA, well before they became Transworld Airlines. Also aboard were Edward Vernon Rickenbacker, Eddie Rickenbacker, yes, the leading U.S. fighter ace from World War I, and now president of Eastern Air Transport. Six journalists rode as passengers during the flight, along with a little over 3,000 pounds of mail. The route of flight to Newark, New Jersey, had 10-minute refueling stops in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Kansas City, Kansas, and Columbus, Ohio. The DC-1, named the City of Los Angeles, arrived at Newark after a total elapsed time of 13 hours, 4 minutes, and 20 seconds, besting the previous time of a passenger plane in coast-to-coast flight by more than 6 hours. Now, these two events are not called flight tests, but both are examples of pushing the envelope. So are there risks unique to these type of flight activities? Share your thoughts and experience with us on what you think. Moving on to the North American Flight Test Safety Workshop. A hotel reservation link is open for the workshop, which will be held 30 April through 2 May in Seattle, Washington. Now, the focus for this workshop is first flights. If you have a first flight story to share, please send us an abstract before the deadline of 26 February. And no written paper is required. Just be able to share your story in the 25-minute time slot allotted. You can follow the links in the show notes to make hotel reservations or submit an abstract. And my final bit of admin, we are currently taking nominations for the 2024 Tony LeVere Flight Test Safety Award. Now, this award was established by the Flight Test Safety Committee to formally recognize a single individual or small group of individuals who recently have made a significant flight test safety contribution to the flight test community as a whole, an organization, a specific program, or even a singular event. This award is specific to flight test safety achievements and contributions. One of the rewards, and I would say one of the obligations of being a leader, is to recognize your people for their achievements. And you can do that by following the link to the award info in the show notes.
Okay, this month we are going to pick up our discussion with Juan Gerardo and Clark McGehee on their paper, Outcome-Based Framework for Online Model Validation and Risk Awareness. If you missed part one, you're definitely going to want to go back and listen to that first. Okay, so as this develops and matures, you know, obviously you mentioned there's there's an impact for safety. I, I Listening to it, it sounds like there's probably impacts for efficiency as well. Is this something you think that eventually any test team will have the capability to do? You know, one of one of the things we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast is uh, STPA and, and some of these processes that are out there helping us understand risk and complex systems. Um, as you describe it, it sounds complicated, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is complicated. It's hard. You know, we're doing a podcast here. We don't have the charts in front of us. But do you think this is something that most test teams will have the tools, will have the experience and be able to do as it develops and progresses? So we developed it just on our laptops, really. I mean, just with Python on our laptops and some, um, you know, example data from the T38 and and some other kind of faked data, uh, artificial data, just to create some stress cases. Um, so to answer your question directly, yeah, I, I do think that this is accessible to anyone that has uh, sort of a, a model of any system they're testing before they go test it. So if you're if you're starting with a model and you've stress tested that model in development uh, to know that you have a family of good and bad cases, then this method can apply to you, and it, it doesn't require uh, supercomputers or anything like that. Uh, to add on to that, I, I would say that practically, you know, what you, if you're looking to build a test team that is capable of doing this, uh, really, you, you do probably want someone on your team that has some experience with programming, right? Whether it's Python, MATLAB, or C++ or something like that. Someone who understands, uh, you know, not only programming, but maybe the field you're in. So for example, in terms of uh, flight controls and aerodynamics. We're both familiar with, you know, CM alpha, CM beta, what those curves mean, uh, real-time parameter ID, so estimation. So uh, it depends on whether your team is equipped with that kind of engineer, but I think it's very, you know, that is not a rare type of person to find. There's a lot of people that study this at either the undergrad or at the master's level that could certainly bring this to the team. Probably the biggest key, like Clark just said, is you know, you do the, the one requirement for this to be applicable is that you do have a system that you're testing where you have a pretty good model of that system right. that you can stress test before you even go fly. That's probably the one requirement. Now, once you bring it to a control room, the people looking at the output of this don't have to be expert. You can turn this into any type of little flag or or visual aids for test directors and test conductors. They don't have to be experts at, you know, programming and complex systems. They just, you know, uh, some of the papers we presented is how do you turn that into actionable information real time for the control room, which is right. a, a potentially a different talk. But yeah, um, uh, definitely accessible for the right kind of problem. Okay. All right. Thanks. And I know, you know, trying to ask you guys to to talk about something that you had slides and graphics and everything to do and, and just cover that in audio and a podcast is challenging, but we will include a link. Uh, to your stuff for those who can access it uh, in the show notes. But let me ask you this. So I've seen you guys, as I mentioned before, present a few times at different symposia, and that's not something everybody is willing to go do. So can you each share what, what was it that inspired or motivated you to want to get up there at a podium on some stage and talk about something you experienced or talk about something you learned? 
Uh, I would say, you know, uh, interestingly for us specifically, like I said, we met, we met in 20, uh, I think 2014 uh, at the 413th Flight to Squadron and being both sort of researchers, you know, uh, I, I didn't have my PhD at the time, but Clark did. Uh, we were both very interested in sort of applying what I would say modern techniques to to the flight test community. Uh, we our first problem that we that we ran into was trying to calibrate the air data system on a C-130. Uh, and at the time, even though we all knew we had we were carrying GPS, you know, systems, neither of us was quite sure exactly how to use that GPS to calibrate the air data. We knew it was possible. And so that when we started looking into that, not only did we find a lot of research in, in, from the conferences from SFT and SETP, uh, a lot of papers that had already been presented on GPS-based methods. So that sort of helped us solve our problem at the time and sort of motivated us to the fact that these societies have these, these knowledge bases. Uh, but then we ended up actually coming up with a, you know, a, a robust technique of our own that was able to, again, in the thrust of the entire 10 years we've been working, uh, uh, in our mind, it was something that the community should know about, you know, almost like, hey, here's we benefited from these repositories, these presentations that people had taken the time to make in the past. We just improved upon that based on the work that we just did. You know, this was 2015. So uh, being researchers and sort of motivated to improve the community, to me, that was my motivation. Like, hey, we should get out there and present this information to the community because it worked for us. And it's sort of almost like giving back to that community that where we initially got the, the seeds of our idea there at the time. Uh, so that was for me personally, kind of what, what motivated me to get up on stage and, and sort of talk about this. We were excited about it, passionate about it, and we saw it as a way to help the community as a whole. Right. Great stuff. Seafoods, how about you? Yeah, maybe to compliment that a little bit. I mean, piece of advice I got when I was in grad school was, you know, if you don't write it down and you can't talk about it, it's not a real idea. And so, you know, forcing yourself to actually write something down uh, is, is sort of, certainly one step of figuring out how to explain yourself and, and get ideas out of your head uh, and into the world. And then I would say presenting is, is another step. So a lot of it is just um, kind of a, in an effort for us to understand what we're doing. It helps us to try to find a way to communicate that uh, to an audience that is not as immersed in the problem as we have been, because it, it forces us to consider a lot of angles uh, that we could just drive right by if if we never did. Okay. And uh, since we're doing this one on a Zoom call, we're going to run out of time here. So I want to give each of you an opportunity to hit us with, uh, you know, I, I do this with everyone who comes on the podcast, hit us with a nugget of wisdom that you'd like to share with the people who listen to this mm -hmm. um, from your experience so far in flight test profession. And so we'll start with you. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I think uh, just thinking about this, uh, you know, one of the things that has been uh, probably on both of our minds, but you know, a lot of my mind certainly is, you know, what does it mean to be a tester? And what is your real value to the program? We, we talked earlier on about, you know, we're, we're, we're typically seen as a red, a red cell on someone's budget. So what, what value are we bringing to, to the development world, whether it's private sector or the government sector? And one of the things that has struck me over the past few years, especially as we as we look at, uh, especially through my work at Testpilot School as a as a as a educator there, is that you know in my mind as a tester, something that we should be aspiring to do, something that I certainly aspire myself to be, is not just someone who can obviously you know plan the test, execute the test, go go fly, get the data, so that we're getting closer there. 
Uh, typically, we talk about turning that data into actionable information, and that's that's usually where we've been at for a long time. What I would challenge, you know, the the, the community that's listening to this is to think of yourself as a tester, as someone who is a positive influence over the development program, someone who is actually providing, uh, you know, prescriptive uh, analysis, meaning here's what we should be doing, decision quality analysis to positively alter the course of action of some development program. So in the military, this would be the program offices that are trying to um, balance everything that they need to balance to get a system fielded, but it, it can also apply to the, to the private sector, obviously, when you're trying to field a new product. And so to me, I've begun to see me and the community of testers as not just people who produce the data, uh, uh, as people who have to take that data, turn it into information, and then take it one step further and make sure that your information positively influences the course of action, uh, the course of the life of that product or that system that you're trying to field. So seeing yourself as a test leader, as opposed to just someone who generates data, to me motivates me. And I think that's kind of where we should be aspiring to do. So that's that's sort of my nugget, is to see yourself as more, as more than just someone who goes and gets the data, turns it into information, but as someone whose job it is, to ensure that that information is heard and considered and that that information kind of moves the ball down the field a little bit. Okay. Seafood, how about you? Uh, take the kind of complimentary side of that. And I'd say, so that's our product and know your customer and your customer is that decision maker who ultimately is just making a risk-based decision on whether or not to do something, whether that's, um, the flight authority deciding whether or not to do the next test event or whether that's the product owner deciding whether or not to field or, or sell uh, the product, whatever the case may be in your industry. Um, if you, you think of an extreme case, right, like a, a military uh, program office fielding a new airplane, uh, it's totally possible that someone could just say, well, I accept the risk. I'm not doing any flight tests. That would be heinous, uh, but someone could do it. Uh, so the question is, what does that person need to be more comfortable making that risk decision? And are the things you're doing and the information you're providing helping them arrive at that decision uh, better? So know that person, know what they need, and make sure that the outputs of your organization are, are helping them out. Okay, great stuff. Hey, gentlemen, thank you very much. I know you're both uh, busy, and I and it took us a while to get this set up, so I appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me and for our listeners today, you know, one of the great things about doing this podcast is I get to I get to connect with old friends. I get to talk with some very, very interesting people. And every now and then I get to talk with people who are way smarter than I am. And I think that coming out of a conversation like that, like I've just had with you two, some of that's got to rub off, even if we're doing it digitally. So I feel smarter just coming out of this podcast. So thanks again for agreeing to do this. Uh, we look forward to seeing you guys on stage at a future event. Thanks, Turbo. Appreciate thanks. you uh, Appreciate having us. Yeah, honored to be here. Thanks. Many thanks to Sylvan Seafits for sharing their work with us. So what do you think about their approach? One of the key elements in assessing risk is the ability to understand potential outcomes. After the last episode, I had a listener send me a note about their skepticism around computer-based tools and preferred something more traditional like the 5Y approach. So think about it, discuss it amongst your colleagues, and send us your thoughts. It's kind of why we do the podcast. It's to get you thinking, discussing, and maybe solutioning, if that's even a word. And lastly, be on the lookout for next month's flight test safety fact. Now, I've been told it is the March Madness issue with brackets and everything. 
who, or more appropriately, which, will come out on top. Now you're wondering, what could this be about? I know, I can see you... Shiva with anticipation. Stay tuned for more. And until next time, be safe, be smart, and be ready. The Flight Test Safety Podcast is sponsored by Time to Climb Training and Consulting. Motivate your team to succeed, accelerate towards your goals, and elevate to a higher level of performance. On the web at www.time2climb.com.